couple of uh, items of thanks to the thanks to the church. Uh, we packed up. I should, we I've included myself in this, Mickey. Uh, <laughs> we uh, delivered this week. Mickey and Wes delivered this week the shoe boxes that were collected. Seventy-two shoe boxes. So to everybody who uh, helped pack shoe boxes. Uh, thank you uh, for that, uh, the blessings. And so continue to pray uh, over that, that uh, the children who receive those will be blessed and that it really will be an opportunity for them to hear the gospel, for the people who are working with those groups, that they will hear the gospel uh, and believe. Uh, and then also we had uh, the packing for Building Better Kids on Friday. Uh, and so packed up. Uh, we had a lot of food. Uh, there was so much. And so uh, thank you to all who donated. Uh, and thank you to those who were able to come up and help with that packing. Uh, and so continue to pray for those families that received that. Uh, and the, uh, the conversations that were had, that as people uh, dropped that off and opening the doors for conversations of, of God's love and care for them. And so uh, thanks, thanks for all of that. Uh, we really do appreciate your partnership with us in that, in those ministries. Many in our society have become very pluralistic in their approach to religion. Uh, people argue, you know, essentially all religions kind of are the same. They teach a lot of the same things. And people have taken from that the view, well, ultimately all paths lead to the same God. Uh, I remember in my philosophy class, probably my freshman year of college, uh, hearing for the first time the parable of the blind men and the elephant. Some of you may have heard this parable, uh, but the the instruction or the the story goes that there were these blind men who had heard about an elephant uh, but had never obviously been able to see one and so they had to experience the elephant and so an elephant was brought to them and each individual went to the elephant uh, to feel what the elephant was and one ended up at the trunk and felt uh, the trunk of the elephant and determined, oh, the elephant must be like a snake. Uh, another on the side of the ele- elephant, feeling around, decided, oh, an elephant is like a wall. It's solid and hard like a wall. Uh, and then another blind individual grabbing a hold of the leg and feeling the leg and thinking, well, uh, an elephant is kind of like a tree. And the the point of that parable was to say that's kind of how religion is. There's all these different religions out there and people have tried to try to they can't really see God. And so they try to figure out based off of their experience what God is like. Uh, But all of them weren't correct. And collectively, if you could put all that information together, it would be Uh, a more comprehensive picture. And I remember hearing that and being a little bit intrigued. Uh, I remember hearing that and thinking, well, I wonder if that's true. I wonder if if maybe that is the case. Uh, 
And I know others had that same thought. I wonder if that's true about God, that I just based off of my experiences that I've been taught that that's uh, not the real picture of God. However, Scripture makes exclusive claims. Our Bible makes some very exclusive claims about who God is. Uh, And if we believe that this is truly God's Word, and if we believe that it really is true because it's been breathed out by the Holy Spirit, which we do believe that, if that is the case then that completely blows this pluralistic idea of religion and all paths leading to the same God out of the water. That cannot be a reality if what these words the Bible teaches us are true. Our text today has an exclusive claim in it from our Savior. Uh, and that our, it's important for us to believe this It's important for us to know what it says, to believe it, and to affirm it to others. And our title today is The Exclusivity of Jesus. The Exclusivity of Jesus. Turn with me to Luke 13. I'm going to read verse 22 to 35 and pray for us. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem. Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter, but won't be able to. Once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door, then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you. I don't know you or where you're from. Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you are from. Get away from me, you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from the east And west, from the north and south, to share the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this. Some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came and told him, Get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go tell that fox. Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow and on the third day. I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day because it is not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. And we do confess it is true. But we confess there there are days that there are truths that are found that can be hard. And there certainly are truths that push against what the world says. Help us believe and help us respond accordingly to what your word tells us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the first point in this text, and this is going to be the the majority of what we're looking at today, but the first point is this. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Looking at verse 22 to 30. He went through one town and village after another, teaching and making his way to Jerusalem Lord, someone asked him, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because I tell you, many will try to enter and won't be able to once the homeowner gets up and shuts the door. Then you will stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. He will answer you, I don't know you or where you're from Then you will say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know you or where you are from. Get away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that place when you see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves thrown out. They will come from the east and west and north and south to share in the banquet in the kingdom of God. Note this, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Jesus is the only way to salvation. So in verse 22, 23, he's continuing on in his journey towards Jerusalem. If you remember, if you've been here through this sermon series, a couple of chapters back, there was the moment where it says that he fixed his face on Jerusalem, or he set his face like stone on Jerusalem. And we talked about that commitment of knowing what it was going to take uh, and setting his mind and determining himself to go and do what was necessary uh, so that we could be saved. And so he's continuing on in this. We learned that this was likely in the last Uh, Six months of his life. And as he is working his way towards Jerusalem, he is continuing town after town, village after village, going in and teaching the people. And he is talking to them about his return. He is talking to them about coming judgment. He is talking to them about the kingdom of God and how to be a part of that. And he's been warning people. It's time to get right with God now before it's too late. And so someone from the crowd calls out and asks a question. Is there only going to be a few people that are saved? As, as they're hearing about judgment coming, as they're hearing about the kingdom of God and that you need to get right with God before it's too late, he's picked up on Well, that must mean that there are going to be some who won't be in the kingdom of God. And so he asks, well, are you saying that there's just a few? 
Are you saying that there's going to be some who are not saved? And Jesus' response in verse 24 to 27 is an exclusive claim. First, he says, the way to salvation is narrow, right? Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Uh, salvation is not this broad thing that's, that everyone's eventually going to make it to. It's a narrow door that, uh, for how an individual can be saved. And he says many are going to try. Some people are going to try through following false gods. Some people are going to try by uh, being good enough. Well, I did a lot of good things, or at least did more good things than bad. At least I was better than my neighbor. Many will try, but they will not be a part of the kingdom of God. They won't be saved. And so Jesus says, make every effort that you, speaking to the individual and of course all individuals, make every effort that you enter into the kingdom of God through the narrow door. So the question becomes, well, what is that? What's, what's the narrow door? If, if it's only a, a narrow path that makes it to the end, that gets us into the kingdom of God, what's the path that I need to be on? So I want to make it through that narrow door. And Jesus goes on to explain that that is through a personal relationship with Him. That's through our personal connection, putting our faith in Him. It's not through any other way. And so he says, on the day that the doors closed, there will be many who are on the outside who are crying out, wanting to get in, wanting to be saved. And Jesus' response is going to be, I don't know you. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you come from. We have no relationship. And therefore, you cannot partake in my kingdom. For those without a relationship with Christ, they will not be allowed into the kingdom of God. It is a narrow door. That exclusive claim is that it, all paths do not lead to the same place. It's only through Christ and our personal relationship with Him that we can be saved. And he makes it clear, we're not talking about just a uh, knowing about Jesus. Having a, a relationship of, like, well, I kind of know Him, right? He says, some are going to cry out and say, well, yeah, you remember us, right? We, we had meals together. You came and taught in our town, you know us, you can let us in. And his response is going to be the same. For those who don't have a personal relationship with him, it is, get away from me, you evildoers. And then in verse 28 to 30, we see that for those who don't have that personal relationship with Jesus, that the judgment that's coming is torment, right? There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for the people who are on the outside of God's kingdom. Seven times the, the New Testament uses that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
to express what hell is going to be like. It is a place of torment that no one wants to be in. It is a place of torment for the unrighteous, for the people who have not received the righteousness that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it is important that we see that salvation is open to all. But the ones who are saved will be the ones who enter in through the narrow door. So he speaks and says, you know, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those that are cast out. And you're going to watch Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets enter into the kingdom of God. And there's going to be people that come from the north and the south and the east and the west. People coming to the kingdom of God from all over. Now, the Jews didn't expect any Gentiles to be saved, or very few. But they expected most all of the Jews, unless you were a horribly wicked person, would be saved because they were God's chosen people. And Jesus is saying, no, there's, there's going to be a time where some who think that they are the chosen ones are actually going to be last and there's going to be a time when there are people that everyone has expected, oh, those are the outsiders, that they're actually going to be brought into the kingdom of God from all over. Scripture speaks of uh, people in Christ's kingdom from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's why we support missions here, uh, because we believe that this is the kingdom that God is, is building but again, all who are saved, the only way that they are going to be saved is by entering through the narrow door, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in Jesus alone. He tells his disciples in John 14. This is after he's talked to them about going and preparing a place for them. Uh, and that He will come back for them. And He tells them, you know the way to where I'm going. You know the way to my Father's house. And Thomas cries out and says, Lord, we don't know. Like, we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. And Jesus' response in 14, verse 6 of the Gospel of John is this. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim. He is the way. He's not a way to God. He's not a way to heaven. He is the way. It is an exclusive claim from our Savior. The only way to make it to heaven, the only way to make it into the presence of God and in the kingdom of God is through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. In Acts 4, Ten through twelve, Peter and and John uh, making a defense for themselves uh, and the faith before the Jewish leadership says this. Acts four verse ten. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. 
This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. It is in Christ alone that we are saved. It is only through Jesus that we can have salvation. No one else. It can't be found in ourselves. It can't be found in another religion. It is only through Jesus and our personal relationship with Jesus that we will be saved. It's an exclusive claim and it's one that church we must affirm because our Savior affirmed it and because Scripture repeatedly affirms it. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Back in Luke 13, the second point of this text is this. Jesus was committed to accomplishing our salvation. Jesus was committed to accomplishing our salvation. So since Jesus was the only way, since salvation would only be possible by God's own Son coming down, living a perfect life, and dying in our place so that we could be forgiven... Since that is the only way that we were going to be saved, Jesus was committed to it. Jesus was committed to doing whatever it took to go and rescue us. We've used that language before. He was on a rescue mission. He came to save us and He was committed to accomplishing that salvation. Luke thirteen thirty one to 33 At that time... Some Pharisees came and told him, Go, get out of here. Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, Go tell that fox, Look, I'm driving out demons and performing healings today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Yet it is necessary that I travel today, tomorrow, and the next day, because it's not possible for a prophet to perish outside of Jerusalem. It's interesting that some Pharisees came to warn Jesus. Because scriptures have already told us earlier in the gospel accounts that they had determined to kill him. They had already started plotting and making plans. How can we get rid of this man? How can we get rid of this blasphemer? We've got to find a way to get rid of Jesus. And so it's interesting Either these that came to him have started to have a change of heart, which doesn't seem fitting because they wanted him gone, but it could be that. Or maybe the thought was, maybe we can scare him away. And then we don't have to be guilty of, of doing anything against him. Maybe we can just scare him by saying, hey, you know what? We heard that Herod wants you dead. And of course, people of power... If they are against you, it's hard to, to take a stand. In that day, certainly, if the king wanted you dead, there wasn't much stopping that, right? Uh, and so it's likely that the thought was that this would scare Jesus. Uh, hey, Herod wants to kill you, and maybe Jesus would flee and disappear off into the sunset, and they would never hear from him again. But regardless of what the intent of these Pharisees coming and telling Jesus this, 
Jesus' response for them is not one of fear. He's not afraid of this news that King Herod wants him dead. And he says, well, I've got a message for Herod. You go tell that fox, which in Jesus' day, for the Jews to use that phrase to call someone a fox was an insult. You tell that fox this. I don't care if he thinks he wants me dead. He can't stop my work. He can't get in the way of what I'm going to do. Today, I'm healing and casting out demons. And you know what tomorrow's going to be? Another day of me healing and casting out demons. And then on the third day, I'll finish my work. Which is foreshadowing. They didn't know at the time exactly what the foreshadowing was. But of course, it's on the third day that Christ is raised from the dead. And so he's referencing, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I will complete my work. Because I will come back from death, defeating death. And so Jesus says, look, I'm not afraid of what Herod has planned for me. He can't stop what it is that God has for me to do. I'm going to Jerusalem. I will be rejected in Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the place that prophets are rejected and killed. They actually had a history of that. When you look through uh, the stories of the Old Testament, the people of God oftentimes rejected the prophets that God sent to them, the messengers that God had sent them because they were coming almost always exclusively calling out their own idolatry, their own sin, their own rejection of God. And over and over again, the prophets that God sent were severely beaten, mistreated, and many of them killed in Jerusalem. And so, Jesus says, it's not possible. Like, I know where this is going. There's a plan in place and I will go to Jerusalem because that's the place that the messengers of God have to go and be rejected. And so I'm going to accomplish the work, right? I will do everything that's necessary because he needed to go and be rejected by the people of God so that he could then die for our sins, and accomplish our salvation. I love Jared Wilson's reminder. So as we think about him accomplishing our salvation. Him doing what was necessary. And him doing all that was necessary for our salvation. And Jared Wilson says, you know, that's what the message of the gospel is. So when Christ from the cross speaks his last words, his last words are, it is finished It's not get to work. What was necessary for salvation has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. He did all the work. That's why the author of Hebrews says that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. The author of Hebrews says this, 
By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifice time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking about Jesus, but this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down at the right hand of God because the work was finished. And if you want to hear a message on that, uh, there is a message by Brian Chapel on Christ sitting down on this passage. It's the most beautiful message of the work is done. And so you can search for that. It's on YouTube. Brian Chapel, Christ sat down. Uh, so the author of Hebrews is reminding us the reason he can sit down is because the work is finished. He's done everything that was necessary for you to be saved and for me to be saved. After accomplishing the work, he sat down. He has accomplished our salvation and he was committed to going to Jerusalem to do that. He knew what was going to happen. He knew he was going to die. He knew it was going to be excruciating, not a peaceful death, a horrible excruciating death and he was committed to doing that because he wanted to save us he wanted to do what was necessary for us to be saved that takes us to the third point from this passage jesus desires for us to come to him for salvation jesus desires for us to come to him for salvation verse 34 and 35 back in luke 13 this is a lament, Jesus lamenting over the city that's going to reject him, the people that are going to reject him. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is abandoned to you. I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Speaking to the nation of Israel, even though they have a history of rejecting the messengers that God sends, even though he knows what's going to happen, that it's going to lead to his death, his response is one of love and care. How often I've wanted to gather you under my wings. How often I've wanted to be a, a place of refuge for you, a place of safety for you. And he uses that image of a mother hen gathering her chicks up underneath her. A place of safety a place of refuge, a place where nothing can get to them. And he says, that's what I want. That's what I want for my people. I want to be able to rescue you. I remember Dr. Allen, one of my seminary professors, sharing with us. Uh, he had a small farm uh, as an adult. Uh, he, he and his wife bought a small farm and they had some... Uh, chickens they had you know quite a bit of livestock but they had some chickens and one day while he was traveling one of the uh hens had uh 
had some chicks. And they needed to make sure that the chicks were safe for a few days until he got back from his trip. So they brought the chicks into the house. Uh, and he said, when, we got, when I got back to the house, we fixed up a safer uh, coop for those chicks to be with their mom. The problem that they had was they had three hens that were almost identical. And he wasn't sure which hen was actually the mother. And so they got the chicks all together and he said, we, uh, you know, I told my sons, grab, grab the first hen, let's put her in. They put the hen in with the chicks and he said she did nothing. She just pecked around on the ground, uh, ignoring the chicks that were in. And the, the second uh, hen that they put in there, the same thing. And he said, I, I started to be really worried. Like, has the mother rejected them? Like, did did we keep them separated too long? And so he said, we picked up the third hen, the last hen, and set it in. And he said, it was a flurry. He said, it almost happened so fast that you couldn't see it, that she rushed at her chicks and scooped them up underneath her and pulled them in and sat down making all kinds of noise because she was finally back together with her chicks and she was going to be a safe place for them. She was going to be the refuge for them. And Jesus uses that language and says, that's what I want to do for my people. I want to be the refuge. I want to be the place that you can come in close and know that you're safe. Know that, that, that I've got you. and I'm going to take care of you. I've done everything that you need. Unfortunately... He says, but you didn't want that. You weren't willing to have that. You weren't willing to have the rescue that I've longed for, for you. So then he looks ahead to a time that the city's going to be abandoned because of their rejection of him, because of their unwillingness to receive the refuge and the shield that's available to them in Jesus Christ. It says, your city will be abandoned to you. And that comes in 70 A.D. Rome overthrows and destroys the city. He says, but there'll, there'll be a day. You'll see me one day. Uh, and this is likely not talking about uh, the, uh, his triumphal entry but likely looking ahead to another day when Christ returns. And he says, there will be a day when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. One day you'll realize it. One day the people will realize it. And they will be overjoyed that I'm here when I return again. So as the one who came to reveal the Father, that's Jesus, he uses the language that was common for how God wants to care for us. How God takes care of us. And there are lots of different ways that he describes that. Uh, he talks about being a shield for his people. But one of the most common ways that the psalmists use is that same language that Jesus used here. It's the image of a mother bird taking care of her chicks. And so in Psalm 57... Verse 1, this is when David is having to flee from Saul for protection because Saul wants him dead. 
Be gracious to me, God. Be gracious to me, for I take refuge in you. I will seek refuge in the shadow of your wings. That was a common metaphor for God's loving, protective care of wrapping around us and being a safe place for us. And Jesus uses that image to say, that's what I desire for you. I want to be a safe refuge for you. I want you to come to me for salvation. That's why he came. That's why God sent his son was for this purpose. Later on in Luke, we see that was his mission. Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's what he came for. He wants us to draw close to him. He wants to be a safe refuge for us. The Bible is clear. And the words of Jesus today remind us He is the only way to be saved. And so to those who haven't really made up their mind about Jesus, today's the day to believe in him and be saved. Jesus' words to the man who asked the question, are you saying there's just a few that will come? Are you saying there's just a few that are going to be saved? His response is the response For every one of us, make every effort to enter through the narrow door before it's too late. Make every effort. And so, it's a day to ask, do I I have a real relationship with Jesus? Do I have a a genuine relationship? This isn't meant to to scare you into thinking, well, maybe I don't. But a, a genuine assessment. Is my relationship real with Christ? Or is it just something that's on the, I just thought, well, I mean, I know about him. You know, the response from the crowd was, you came to our city? We ate together? Isn't that enough? And Jesus says, like, there was not a real relationship. I don't know you. So the question is, Do you have a real relationship with Him? And if not, today's a day of salvation. Today's a day to believe in Him and be saved. Because Scripture says if you will just believe in Him, you will be saved. Believe that He died for your sins. And that He's accomplished everything that's necessary for you to be saved. Would you believe in Him today if you have not? And if you want to know more, or if you have some questions and starting to wonder, well, I don't know, do I not have a real relationship with Christ? I'd love to talk with you more about that. But church, for us, let's not be ashamed about the exclusivity of Jesus. The exclusive claims that Scripture teaches, that Christ really is the only way of salvation, Let's not be ashamed of that. Let's affirm what Scripture teaches, that He is the only way to be saved. And let that motivate us. Since that's true, that should motivate us to share the good news. Because we have neighbors, all of us. We have friends. We have co-workers. We have family who have not trusted in Christ. 
And so the, the exclusivity of Christ is not something we should be ashamed of, but that it should motivate us to lovingly share the news. There's a Savior for every one of us. If you would just believe in Him. He wants you to be saved. He did everything that was necessary for you to be saved. Would you believe in Him? Let's be motivated. Who do you need to share the gospel with? We have people on our hearts and minds. We have people that we know that we care about, but we worry. I don't want to I don't want to push them away. Let's start praying for boldness and let's share the good news about the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are good and faithful. We thank You for Your love. We thank You for Your care for us. Help us experience and feel that loving care today and every day. Help us remember to draw close to You and that You truly do want to be a safe refuge for us as we navigate this broken and fallen world. God, for anyone who is not trusted in Christ, help them see, help them believe. And for your church, God, give us boldness to affirm what Scripture teaches with love, with grace, but boldly affirm that Christ is the only way and use us to reach more people with the good news of the gospel. It's in Jesus Christ I pray. Amen.